It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, where do the human soul and spirit go when we die? Coming up in this episode, what is a human soul? Is it the same as a human spirit? When we die, we all like to think that we know what happens to our soul and spirit. Are we accepting explanations of these things based on simple faith? Or can we actually know what the soul and spirit are and how they work? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I am joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. It's a privilege. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. This topic literally affects everyone. I'm looking forward to it. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do human beings have souls, or are they souls? Do human beings have a spirit, and if so, what does that mean? Or are we really spirit beings temporarily confined in a terrestrial body? What happens when we die? Do our soul and spirit die? Do they go someplace? Do they, do they stay together? Religions, cultures, and philosophy have weighed in on these questions for untold centuries. The answers we've come up with are as varied as the peoples of this planet. So how can we know who's right? If we objectively look into the Bible to define the human soul and spirit and what happens to them at death, it is possible to find concrete guidance and answers. Why a biblical perspective? Because it's ancient reasoning written over many centuries that has proven itself historically accurate, morally sound, and prophetically true. So the scriptures have a long track record of telling the truth. That's why we go to the scriptures. And folks, this is a two-part podcast. The question again, where do human soul and spirit go when, they, when we die? First part, today we're going to really, really focus in on the human soul. And part two, we're going to focus in on the human spirit. So you're going to need both parts to be able to get a clear picture of this whole subject. So the popular belief is you live in a body, you are a spirit, you have a soul, spirit, body, soul, mind, all are connected to make up what we call you. So when you die, it's like a worm that goes to sleep in a cocoon and appears to die, but it then transforms into a beautiful butterfly. Something inside you is immortal and goes on to the next life. Sounds simple enough, but is it all true? Is it scriptural? It sounds simple. And the question is, is it true? And the big question is, is it scriptural? This is made up, this discussion, this two-part discussion is made up of several moving parts. So there are basic elements of the soul, spirit, life, and death questions here. We're going to go to uh, several scriptures just to lay out the elements. Jonathan, first, what do we have? The human soul, Genesis 2, verse 7 with the King James Version. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Bible seems to clearly label man as a soul. We then have the human spirit in Zechariah 12.1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So the Bible seems to define the human spirit as formed within each person. Next, the human soul and spirit divided, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible seems to show us a significant difference between our soul and spirit. And that's one of the key questions this two-part series will explore. Are the soul and spirit just interchangeable terms, or are they different? And finally, God has a spirit. And we see in Genesis 1, 1 1-2, 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So what does God's spirit have to do with the human spirit? So that, that's a good question because all of these previous scriptures are about me, me, me. And now we bring in God having a spirit. Well, the idea is to understand what soul means and what spirit means. And we can understand what spirit means. And again, this will really be focused in on part two by looking at the spirit of God. That's going to help us to understand what the human spirit is. There's a tremendous, very important connection there. So all of these scriptures that we just mentioned, we're going to come back to between these, this two-part series and develop them some sooner, some later, so that we can see what the scriptures teach. And folks, this is our objective today. We want to see and follow what the scriptures teach. So in part one of this two-part series, we're going to first focus on defining, defining what the human soul is. We can't know where a soul goes upon death unless we know what it is and how it's defined. So what we decided to do was put a working definition of what we believe the Bible teaches about the human soul. So I'm going to give you this definition, and we have drawn it from Scripture. The human soul is the result of a living, physical body. It is the human life that is dependent upon the basic bodily function, external sustenance, and protection from the elements. Without all of these elements, the soul, the human life, would be rendered dead and therefore out of existence. Now, some of you may have heard that and say, what? Wait a minute, did I hear you right? Hang on, we're going to put the scriptures to that statement because we drew that statement from scriptures. How did we do that? Old Testament, let's start with the Old Testament. Human life was created in God's image and man becomes a soul. Man becomes a being. Jonathan, let's go back to Genesis 2-7. And we'll read this again, but this time it'll be from the New American Standard Bible. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We need to focus on the last word, being. Strong's exhaustive concordance assigns that Hebrew word nephesh, as number 5315. Nefesh simply means a breathing creature. What's interesting is that I just read from the New American Standard, a man became a living being. The same scripture I read first in the King James says, and man became a living soul. And some translations like Young's literal uses living creature. It's all the same exact Hebrew word, nefesh. The straightforward Genesis equation for becoming a soul is body plus the breath of life equals a live creature called a soul. Man became a living soul. Man became a living being. He wasn't given a soul in Genesis. And it's important to realize that at creation, you have a clear-cut phrase, man became a living soul, living creature, living being, whichever word you put in there, and it tells you something that we need to build on. So the question is, does that fit? Let's go further. Humans and animals are all referred to as, quote, souls, or Jonathan, you said the Hebrew word nephesh, or creatures. All of them are referred to by the same word. Let's take a look at Genesis 1, verses 20 and 21. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures. Here is that same Hebrew word nephesh, that have life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature, nephesh, that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Humans and animals as sentient beings are both described with that same Strong's exhaustive concordance number 5315, nephesh. They have life. They're living souls. And it's interesting that in the King James Version and others like what Jonathan just read is when referring to animals, some translators take that same nephesh and in English use the word soul when it relates to humans and creature when it relates to animals. Now, the King James translators did have a problem with one particular scripture, Numbers 31, 28. 
They had no choice but to use soul for both man and animals because of the sentence structure. It says, levy a tribute unto the Lord of the men of war, which went out to battle. One soul, Nephish, of 500, both to the person, persons and the cattle and the asses and the sheep. The point is, humans are Nephish, animals are Nephish. Same soul. Okay, so we want to understand that there's a simplicity at the beginning of Scripture that says this is what a human being is. Not what a human being has, but what a human being is. Let's, let's go to a few other scriptures on this. Uh, Jonathan, Genesis 1, uh, you read 20 and 21. Let's go down to verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, nephesh, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Which has life, which is a creature. So all are put into that same category. And it's a fascinating thing to look at and to realize that at the beginning, it's, it, it, just, it, it all goes without saying. It's all the same. All are nephesh, all are living creatures. You go 1,600 years later, after the Great Flood, the same concept carries through. Genesis chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature, nephesh, of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look up upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature, nephesh, of all flesh that is on the earth. So all of the above scriptures indicate that man and animal are of the same makeup. In both cases, their lives are a result of the combination of their body and God's breath of life. And so, so they're living creatures. And you think, well, you know, why do we spend so much time quoting scriptures about animals? Because the Bible is telling us something. It's telling us that there's a commonality between man and animal that we can't deny because it comes up again and again and again. Now, having said that, there is a difference between humanity and the animal creation. What is it? Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Like humans, animals are a soul. They're not given a soul. We're all souls, creatures, sentient beings. But the difference is, Rick, how we're created. The mankind is created in the image of God. And I thought it's also interesting how the Bible over and over again uses the term living soul. Hmm. So it, to me, it implies there could be a dead soul. Yeah. So we're going to be developing this as we go. But there's a lot of basis just in Genesis to help us understand what God's intentions were, and what God's creation really is. So when we look at this whole picture, the Bible and the human soul, Jonathan, what do we have? The Old Testament emphatically defines the human beings as souls. It is clear that Adam was not given a soul, but became a soul when God gave him life. The Old Testament is also emphatic that all living creatures on earth are souls as well, and that humanity is different than the rest because we were created in God's image. Well, what is God's image? You know, being created in God's image, we were humanity was created to have dominion over the earth, to be the thinking creature, the moral creature, the way God is, to be able to make decisions, to have emotions, and to have dominion. So we're different, even though our makeup is the same. We're different because we have that level of intelligence and feeling and, and, and personality that God has. That's what it means to be created in God's image. So the Bible seems to easily define what a soul is, and yet most of us don't accept its definition. So we need to dig deeper. The Old Testament seems emphatic about humans being souls. Is the New Testament also emphatic? Well, believing that the Bible in its entirety is the inspired Word of God means we need to check how the writings before and after Jesus fit together. While Jesus' first advent changed some things, like no longer following the letter of the Jewish law, things like the very nature of humanity 
did not change. So it's important to realize Jesus brought massive changes, but he also built on the basis and the foundation of what God set in place in the Old Testament about humanity and about the destiny and all of those pieces. And so we're going to be focusing on those things that didn't change from Old Testament to New. So examining the New Testament teaching regarding the human soul, we need to first link what Old Testament word is translated into Greek to form the New Testament teaching. This is an important step to take because it gives us a really important connection. Deuteronomy, Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, nephesh, and with all your might. So that's part of the law and part of, and, and you know, it's inspiring. And when we hear those words, we generally don't think of those words as coming from the law. We generally think of Jesus speaking those words. And that's exactly why we're going to this. And folks, this is how you build a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You take a scripture that's quoted in the New Testament, and you therefore can conclude that the words used in the Greek language to describe the Old Testament scripture are an exact correspondence. So Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 22, verses 36 and 37, and we're going to be quoting that Old Testament scripture now in the Greek language. Teacher, which is the great commandment and the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Here Jesus quotes directly from the Old Testament's Deuteronomy 6, 5, which says, And with all your soul. That word for soul is nephesh, but now in the Greek, he uses strong exhaustive concordance number 5590, suke. So nephesh is the word for soul in Hebrew. Suke is the same word translated into Greek. Jonathan, what does suke mean? Well, it's the animal sentient principle. This means the person's life as a whole, a breathing entity. We will see in part two that this differs from the New Testament word translated as spirit. For a simple two-minute animated video for kids and adults, what is the soul, go to christianquestions.com slash YouTube. Um, but I wanted to talk about suke real quick. This meaning of this Greek word, in looking into this, it expanded over the centuries and included, according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, quote, the soul as an essence which differs from the body and is not dissolved in death, end quote. And let me give one other quote from the Expository Dictionary of Bible Words by Lawrence O. Richards. He said, as with many biblical terms, the basic meaning of suke is established by its Old Testament counterpart rather than its meaning in Greek culture. In other words, the word got to mean something bigger than, than it was originally when Jesus was quoting it. Yeah, something bigger and something very different. And that's the important aspect here. That's why we spent so much time establishing a New Test- an Old Testament basis, and now we transfer ourselves into the New Testament. Well, I just wanted to stop here for a second and talk about the term that we've all heard, immortal soul. Some might be surprised to find out that the Bible never actually uses this term. And I gave that butterfly example earlier, the idea, you know, when the physical body dies, the person's soul, their personal identity continues to consciously exist. And in fact, even God doesn't have the power to destroy it. It had a beginning when it was created, but it has no end. Some part of you lives on somewhere forever with your memories. Now, versions of this immortal soul theory are popular in other religions other than Christianity and different philosophies that teach transmigration. That's where individual souls successfully animate different human beings and even the bodies of lower animals or insects. And through successive reincarnations, the soul can undergo evolution and improvement of its condition. So a lot of people are thinking when you say the soul, they think immortal soul, and that's what they're thinking. Yeah, and frankly, that's confusing. Uh, there, there's so much detail that's put onto this soul when you add all of these things. We have to go back to scriptural definition. And folks, we're going to be emphatic about going back to scriptures because that's where you have a clear and concise, never-changing perspective 
And that's the thing. Julie, you mentioned that the language, the word changed over time. The scriptures don't. And if you want to define something, you need to define it with the steel of clarity that says what it said then is what it means now as well as then. So now we look at some uses of this word suke to fit the definition of being the body plus the breath of life. We're going to go now to the New Testament and do what we did with the Old Testament. Jonathan, let's go to Jesus' words first, Matthew 6, 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, suke, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life, suke, more than food and the body more than clothing? Now remember, suke is the Greek word translated from the Hebrew word nephesh. So Jesus is here speaking about our physical lives as physical creatures. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your your physical uh, well-being. It's okay. It's in God's hands. Those believing in an immortal soul differentiate the word life, though, as meaning our life now in this finite lifetime. And they would say soul our soul means forever, eternal life that's inherent in each human. So we don't believe the Bible teaches this, and we're going to see this translator bias in the next verses. And so Jesus used that word, suke, to talk about the present life, okay? So it was very obvious that that's what his intention was. Now in these next verses, though, translations are revealed. Folks, sometimes we translate because we have an internal bias, Listen carefully. We're going to read through Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. We're going to do it in two parts because there is a translator bias inherently here. And we need to, it needs to be exposed. And it's a really simple thing to detect if you know what to look for. So, Jonathan, let's start with Mark 8, uh, 34 to 35. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, suke, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, suke, for my sake and the gospels will be saved. Okay, so Jesus here is using that word suke, talking about dying, talking about losing your life, your, your physical life, your soul, because that's what the word means, for his sake and being granted eternal life. Now, you think about it, translators wouldn't put the word soul here because that would seemingly contradict the teaching that Jesus came to save souls. Why would you lose your your soul? You don't lose your soul if you believe in Jesus. You gain it, according to the teaching. So you can see how the word life has to be in the translation here to fit fit the thought. But on the opposite side, Rick, some would say, well, losing your soul means that your soul is in a burning hell. But Mm. we know the Bible does not teach that. And that saving your soul means that your soul is in heaven. But this wouldn't make any sense because how could you and why would you lose your soul, meaning go to hell for Jesus's sake? And just a quick note for more on the topic of hell, if you are interested in studying this deeper, go to christianquestions.com, search the word hell, and you'll see various episodes on its scriptural meaning. Okay. And back to the context in Mark eight thirty five, uh, for whoever wishes to save his life, suke will lose it. But whoever loses his life, suke for my sake and the gospels will save it. Um, the translators would have had to translate, uh, had to have translated suke as life here, meaning our life now in this finite lifetime. So, Jonathan, let's go to verses thirty six and thirty seven of Mark eight because. It kind of presents a little bit of a different story. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, suke? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul, suke? So Jesus uses the exact same word in these consecutive verses to talk about the same thing. Life in those first two verses, soul in the last two verses, it's the same word. Why do we translate it differently? Well, translators change the word to fit their doctrine. Doesn't that obscure the truth? It gives the impression that the life is one thing and the soul or being is another thing and has fostered the idea that a man might lose his life without losing his soul or his being. So it just doesn't make sense. We have to be careful of the translation and understand what it is we're actually reading. But the truth is divine grace is provided 
not for a countenance of being, but for a resurrection, a living again. If we lay our lives down in the Lord's service following Jesus, we are promised a life in heaven. So you are promised a future life. The key, folks, is that your being is present here and is soul. Your future life is also soul and only is there because of resurrection. We'll get to that later. The point of these verses is the exact same word is is focused on as life in the first two verses, and then Jesus in the same teaching in the next breath uses the same word, and the translator translates it entirely differently. There's no integrity in that. Let's just face the fact. There's no integrity in where we, we end up here. So let's go a little further. The New Testament word for soul, gonna go beyond Jesus' words now, is plainly show to mean, shown to mean our life as human creatures. We've got two scriptures from Acts that really bring this out. Acts 27, verses 21 and 22. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail for Crete and incurred the damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life, suke, among you, but only of the ship. Translating suke as life here is appropriate because a shipwreck would cause your sentient being to die. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? It makes perfect sense. But again, that's the word that's used for soul. So let's understand no loss of life. That means your soul can die. It says it right there. Another scripture, same concept, Acts 15, 25 to 27. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select a man to send you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives, suke, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Okay, they risked their lives. Did they risk their eternal soul? In, in, in relation to, the, into the, the traditional Christian belief? No, they risk their physical life, but it's the same word. Folks, what we're saying is the scriptures are emphatic about the definitions of these words. Suke is nephesh. Suke, New Testament, nephesh, Old Testament, the breathing creature. So the, the, these brothers in this scripture had risked their human life, not their ultimate reward, in service. If anything, such dangerous service would have enhanced their ultimate reward, not put it at risk, but if you risk your life for the sake of, of the gospel, God rewards that. So if you tried to put the word soul in with the traditional belief, it gets confused. Why? Because it doesn't belong. We need to have the integrity of Scripture tell us what to believe rather than have our belief system tell the scriptures what we want them to say. Having said all of that, sometimes the, word, the word's meaning is a little bit hidden. Hebrews 12.3 translates the word uh, suke in a very unusual way. And this is from the King James Version. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Suke. So what is, yeah, suddenly we have minds now is the same exact word. What does that mean? Right. It, it's, it's a, uh, you look at it and say, well, how, how can that possibly be the same word? Well, it, it comes down to that is the, the, the word for, so you would be wearied and faint in your being. Your, your very being would become faint. That's, that's what it's really. Not just your intellect, in other it, words. Right, right. So it's bigger. It's bigger than that. So again, when Jesus connected the Greek suke to the Hebrew nephesh, we saw that his roots, this thinking, was Jewish. It wasn't influenced by the Greek culture of mythology and philosophy around him. He connected the Old Testament and the New Testament for us. And just a reminder that we provide CQ Rewind show notes for every episode at no cost. We list every scripture quoted and much of our commentary, so it's the perfect companion to the audio each week, especially with a topic like this two-part series the rewinds are at christianquestions.com and on the Christian Questions app. Okay, so there's there's a lot here. And folks, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're saying, wait, this is something I've never heard before, I get it. 
So we're going slowly. We want to put scriptures together. And using Rewind, the show notes is an important aspect to say, let me see if the scriptures actually do prove this. Because you don't take our word for it. You take the scriptures' word for it. Let's go to one more example before we wrap up this segment. John 15, verses 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life, suke, for his friends. So Jesus did lay down his earthly life, his being, his creature, his soul for humanity. That's what he did. So life and soul are interchangeable. Yeah, it's really, it really is simple. It really is simple. All right, so let, let's wrap this piece up, focusing on the New Testament. Jonathan, the Bible and the human soul, what do we have? The New Testament is in complete harmony with the Old Testament teaching regarding humans being souls and not having one. This fundamental biblical truth will provide a basis for understanding the role that the human spirit plays in our lives. Remember, we want to define soul so we can understand spirit. You have to go in small steps, and once you put soul in place with understanding in Scripture, then understanding the human spirit is going to be so much easier, and that will be in part two next week. So, depending on your Christian perspective, grasping this scriptural teaching may create more questions than answers. So we as humans are souls, and we don't have souls. What does this mean when it comes to dying? With the soul defined, and we have defined it expressly according to Scripture, that's the only thing we're looking at here. So with the soul defined, our journey toward understanding the relationship between the human soul and spirit can look into the destiny of our souls when our time of death arrives. If I am my soul and my soul is me, then I obviously can't up end up in a different place than myself. So now what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking into this further, the concept of this immortality of the soul comes less from the Bible and more from pagan thinking. You know, the Egyptians had elaborate afterlife stories and the ancient Greeks influenced beliefs, mostly through the philosophy of Plato. He said, death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. And one of his main arguments for a soul that doesn't die is the necessity of a future existence for an appropriate reward of the good and punishment of the wicked. And this shows a lack of understanding of the purpose of resurrection and judgment. And for more on resurrection, listen to episode 1172, How Did Jesus' Resurrection Change Both Heaven and Earth? Uncovering the Far-Reaching Effects of Jesus' Sacrifice. Search 1172 at ChristianQuestions.com or on the Christian Questions app. You know, you, you mentioned Plato and his philosophy, and, you know, he was several hundred years before Jesus. But when I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school, I'm 17 years old, and I, I had given my life to the Lord the year before, and I was a, trying to be very enthusiastic. I was in a, had a philosophy class, and the, the philosophy teacher um, gave us—we we could choose a project— compare two different philosophies. So I chose for my project to compare the philosophy of Plato and the philosophy of Jesus Christ, figuring I want to, you know, show witness to Christianity. Well, you know, as we're starting our project, she just randomly asks students, what have, what's your project and what have you found so far? So she came to me and I said, well, my project is comparing Plato with Jesus. And the first thing that I found is that Plato believed in the immortal soul and Jesus didn't. Now, of course, many, most, most Christians would take issue with that. And I, look, I wasn't being really brave. I was probably being fool. I was not probably, I was being foolish. <laughs> and I said it, I had no idea what I was walking into. And she said, no, you're wrong. Oh, and oh of no. course I said, <laughs> no, I'm right. Now, <laughs> again, this is not brave. This is maybe a little bit <laughs> immature. Okay. And she says, no. And I said, yes. <laughs> and then she spent the rest of the class beating me down. I mean, she's a she's oh, she's a no. college educated philosophy teacher and she made me look completely foolish to the point where my classmates would say, "Well, may, maybe he didn't understand what you said." And I'd say, "No, I understood what you say." Well, well, maybe he sees it in a different perspective, but you're saying the same thing. And I'd say, "No, we're saying different things." And I mean, by the end of the class, I, I, I'm small, but I felt really, really, really small. So I walked up to her desk and said, I want to change my project and I want to prove it to you. 
And so she said, fine. Uh-oh. And so I set out on that project. It's a very long story. The end result was I didn't change anybody's mind. That's for sure. Uh, but the end result was I tried very hard as a very young person to stand for what I believed in. And it taught me a lot. It, my, a lot of my friends turned on me. They thought I was an idiot afterwards. But it was worth it to me because I really am convicted by what the scriptures say. So when you mentioned Plato, my mind always goes... <laughs> brought up some bad feelings, I'm sorry. <laughs> it always goes back to being that senior in high school with that particular experience. A lot more to it, maybe someday we'll tell more of the story. So let's, let's get now to the scriptures here. Let's go to the answers about what happens at the end, when we die. Where do you find the answer to what happens at the end? You go to the beginning. You go back to the beginning. You go back to the test of obedience because it's all there. Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. And Jehovah God taketh a man and causeth him to rest in the Garden of Eden, to serve it and to keep it. And Jehovah God layeth a charge on the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden eating thou dost eat. And of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou dost not eat of it. For in the day of thine eating of it, dying, thou dost die. And this word, um, die, means to literally die. (laughs) Pretty pretty straightforward, right? And and, But but see, this is important, because death is the absence of life. And that's what we need to understand about this. Several points on this scripture. Let's go through them, Jonathan and Julie. A God gave man the perfect environment conducive for living. And man was tasked with its care and upkeep. Man had free access to all except that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Potential consequences for disobedience were eminent, uh, immediately present. The consequence would have immediate effect. Remember that dying thou shalt die? The dying process would now begin And some people are confused by this concept of death, saying life and death are two states of existence rather than existence and non-existence. They say death is not the end of existence. The body dies, but the spirit somehow survives and presumably finds itself, again, either in heaven, hell, or perhaps in the body of an ant or an aardvark, depending on what you've been taught. But before ancient Egypt, with their elaborate afterlife ideas and ancient Greek philosophy and myths, where did this concept of death not actually being the end of existence come from? Well, it comes from Scripture. Shock. Hang on. Don't jump to conclusions, okay? <laughs> Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, which is, is, is looking at when the serpent now is in the process of deceiving Eve. And the serpent said unto the woman, Dying, ye do not die. For God doth know that in the day of your eating of it, your eyes have been opened, and ye have been as God, knowing good and evil. Well, this is the first lie in Scripture. Therefore, Satan is called the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. That is found in John eight forty four. The serpent twisted God's command, you will not surely die. Satan says the complete opposite will happen. He says, listen to me instead. He took something true and changed the fundamental consequences. How many world religions, including a majority of Christianity, supports this lie that people really don't die? It comes down to this. Who are you going to believe, God, the creator of all things, or Satan, Lucifer, the father of lies? It's that simple. We at Christian Questions stand up for the creator whenever he is misrepresented. No wonder 1 Timothy 4.1 describes in our day, Christianity will be teaching doctrines of devils. An immortal soul implies that God's penalty against sin did not go into effect because a part of you never actually dies. So death, far from being the sentence or the curse on our race, is just a temporary door that you pass through. If our souls already have eternal life, think about this, what was the purpose of Jesus dying on our behalf? So you have to put it all in scriptural perspective. So Satan, like you said, misquotes God and cushions it with a partial truth uh, to make it feel less offensive. Eve, Eve is deceived. The test of obedience now goes into the consequence stage. So we go forward a little bit, and now we're going to the consequences that Adam was given. And folks, listen 
carefully to how this is stated. Genesis chapter 3, we'll read verses 17 and then verse 19. Then to Adam he said, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so, so God is making a simple and profound statement in these verses. I made you from the dust of the earth, and I gave you life as a creature of earth. Your disobedience will send you back to the dust of the earth in death. What you have been given has now been lost. That's what's being said here. And so what's happening is you, the human being, will be lifeless. And think of it as when God created Adam, and you know it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think of it as batteries not included. All right? He, cre- <laughs> he created Adam, but Adam was not energized to be alive. God miraculously made him alive, put the batteries in. What God is saying is you are now lifeless. You have no possibility of living because I am going. You are going to return to the elements from which you came. So, well, no ahead. heaven, Rick, was promised for obedience, was it? No, or no, no hell of torment for disobedience. Even after Adam's sin, God did not say a word about a hell of torment awaiting him. Nothing here says a soul will live on to go on to another place. God pronounced the sentence: "Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." So let's go a little bit further. Let's move on on from Genesis, and we're talking about life and death, and we're talking about the definition in Scripture of life and death, and so far it's very plain. Now, we've only talked about one thing. We've only talked about when it's instituted. Let's move further. Let's move on to Job chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. If a man dies, will he live again? It doesn't say if a man's body dies, will it live again. It says if the man, the soul, nephesh, dies, will he live again? It's a very plain, simple statement. Death as the absence of life. Death applies equally both to human beings and to flies. Why do we say that? Two scriptures. First, Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 16, verse 29. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. The word death here means death, natural or violent, concretely the dead. So it's built off of the other word that means die. Okay, it's all the same thing. It's pretty simple. Death is equals lifelessness. Now, Jonathan, let's go to flies. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. The word for dead, for dead flies, is the same word as in Numbers, if these men die the death of all men. The same fate is to all manner of earthly creation. That's the message of these verses. One more verse, Psalm 115, verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. So there is nothing going on in, into the silence of the grave. Go, go down. Are they going down to hell? No, they're going into the grave. That's what it's talking about, being buried in the earth. So if the foundation of life and death in the Old Testament is true, and we've talked about several scriptures, and there are many, many, many more, it should withstand the test of the New Testament that death is the absence of life should be verifiable and easily proven. Folks, you can't have a major doctrine without the Old and the New Testament in 100% agreement. It doesn't work. If you're building it just on one or the other, you're missing something. You need to check and verify through the other part of Scripture. So let's do this. In the next two Scriptures we're going to quote, they refer back to the original sentence for sin given in the garden that we just talked about. So Jonathan, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam caused the sentence of death, which was plainly spelled out in the Old Testament. Now let's remember, Jesus described or referred to the death of Lazarus as sleep, 
For a little homework, read John 11, verses 1 through 14. Now, again, if a soul exists that can't die, why do you need a resurrection? Why do you need to be made alive in Christ if you're never really dead? And let me put it another way. What use would an immortal soul have for a resurrection from the dead? Right. Okay. Dead is the absence of life. Folks, that's what the scriptures are telling us. Romans 6, 20 to 23 also goes back to that original sentence, and it verifies the exact same thing. For when you were slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you than deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. To me, that's really clear. Sin brings death to our sentient beings from which on our own, there is no return. But then Jonathan, you read, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Man doesn't have some spark of eternal life inside of him. The entire hope of any future life is based upon the divine power and the divine promise of a recovery through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why it is such a miracle. It's such a phenomenal thing that Jesus bought back the human race. And exactly. He, and it, 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 it has such incredible, powerful meaning because you were done out of existence, but by the miracle of God through Christ, the miracle you are brought back to life where that is physically, humanly impossible. So Jonathan, wrapping this up, the Bible and the human soul, what do we have? Because of Adam's sin, the destiny of our human lives, our human souls, is revealed in the Bible as death, which is the absence of life. This tragic truth highlights the redeeming value of Jesus' sacrifice. Never forget the value of Jesus' sacrifice. And incidentally, it's all over the Old Testament. You just have to look for it so you can find it. So now we have clarification that death is the absence of life. And that the human soul does experience this death. All of this talk about souls dying. Don't most churches teach that the human soul is immortal? Look, the false immortal immortality of the soul doctrine is pretty much everywhere in Christianity. As we have seen, it got its start. It got its start with Satan's lie to Eve. There's another scriptural path of reasoning that can really settle this immortal soul belief. That path has to do with proving that immortality is not an inherent human trait. So we've gone through the exercise of looking at at defining the word for soul in the Old Testament, nephesh, breathing creature. The word for soul in the New Testament, suke, a breathing creature. We've defined death as being lifeless. We've seen that the soul goes to that lifeless state. There's another way to confirm this. Let's go here. We're going to, well, first, first before, just one more scripture, because I just can't resist one more scripture that this, that the Bible is telling us plainly, souls die. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Jonathan, stop after verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Okay, so what is this talking about? The proverb in Israel was, fathers eat the sour grapes and the children suffer. Why? Because God would say, you've done this wrong and you're, you're going to suffer for three and four generations. So you look at that and say, why am I suffering for what my grandfather did? And you have this issue. And look, that's the natural consequence of sin, incidentally. That's another story. But what happens in this prophecy, it said, there's going to come a time where that proverb is no longer going to be valid because there's going to be a change. And what's the change going to be? Jonathan, read verse 4. Behold, all souls, nephesh, are mine. The souls, nephesh, of the Father, as well as the soul, nephesh, of the Son, is mine. The soul, nephesh, who sins, will die. And Rick, that word die means to die. 
So this is a future prophecy of the day of judgment, the reconciliation process where everybody is raised miraculously because of Jesus and now has to stand on their own two feet. So what the prophecy is saying was, yes, everybody did die as a result of the sin of their fathers, but there will come a time because of Jesus when all will have to stand on their own two feet. And if you die because you disobey God again and again and again and again and again, then that's on you. It's not on anybody else. So it's putting the responsibility for life on each and every soul. Okay, let's, let's move forward now. Let's examine the concept of immortality. According to Webster's Online Dictionary, to be immortal is to be exempt from death or exempt from oblivion. And, and, and Julie, you, you, had, you had mentioned that to us in several of your explanations of many of the doctrinal beliefs about this. And the only two words used for immortality in the New Testament are Strong's Exhaustive Concordance 861 and 110. And 861 means incorruptibility, unending existence, and 110 means deathlessness. Okay, so those are two very specific plain words, incorruptibility. When something's not corruptible, it can't go bad. Unending existence, perpetual, deathlessness, opposite of dying and being out of existence. So with those words, those two words, those are the only two words in the New Testament, we would expect to see at least an inkling of these words connected with the human soul if, in fact, the soul was inherently immortal. Here's the thing. The scriptures teach the opposite. They <laughs> teach that immortality is not inherent. It is something to be sought for. Let's start with Romans 2.7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Why are we told to seek for glory and honor? Well, because we don't inherently have it. So why are we told to seek for immortality? Because we don't inherently have it. Why would we seek for something we already have? And see, that's such a basic principle, and we don't think about it. We don't think about it, but yet the scriptures make it clear. You seek for something that is not yours. That's one scripture. Let's go on to several others. These next scriptures address seeking immortality in the context of what kind of body goes to heaven. Now, there's a lot of details in this next scripture, and we'll try to break it down afterwards. But Jonathan, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, and then verse 50. From the Young's Literal Translation. So also is the rising again of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, the reign of God is not able to inherit, nor doth the corruption inherit the incorruption. So a lot of details. And, and, and folks, if you pay attention to this text, it really opens up a lot of things. The rising of the dead, and it's talking about those who are followers of Christ, sown in corruption, something that goes bad and dies, like we've talked about, raised in incorruption, incorruptible, unending existence, that's what it means, sown in dishonor, we're all sinful, raised in glory by the miracle and, and the life of Jesus, sown in weakness because we are weak human beings in our sinfulness, raised in power beyond humanity. It's so, now listen, so many people th say that the soul is this bodiless entity, and yet it is sown a natural body, the human body, and raised a spiritual body. There is always a body as, as part of a soul. It's always there, whether it's a natural body or a spiritual body. And that's what the verse says. There's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. So we need to see that the idea of immortality is something to reach for that we don't have. And God provides a spiritual body with this miraculous resurrection. Jonathan, let's also go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses down, verses 53 and 54. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, 
Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And the Bible distinctly declares that man is mortal. We find that in Job chapter 4, verse 17, Romans 6, verse 12, Romans 8, verse 11, and 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. Mortal means liable to death. And it's interesting in this verse, it talks about death, lifelessness, is swallowed up in victory because those that things that perish go bad and are gone become imperishable. There is such an opposite here. We are the perishable. We are the corruptible. We are the flawed. We die. But by the grace of God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, there is a calling and an absolute miracle to the resuscitation of life from that which was not. It's an amazing thought, an amazing thought. Go ahead, Julie. And if you have to put on immortality and put on, it says it again and again, this mortal will put on immortality. You can't have it within you if it's something that you are grasping and putting on figuratively. Right, right. So it's not from within. It's something on the outside. And we have to see that. A couple more. There's more, okay? As if this isn't enough, there are more scriptures. Next, in in 2 Timothy, we're going to see that immortality was not ever available until... Jesus made it available. Jonathan, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Other than God himself, immortality wasn't there before Jesus. It's not something humans have, by the way, uh, nor do angels. And, you know, that's an interesting point. That's an important point. The angels are not immortal. They are spirit beings. Just because you're of the spirit nature, and look, we don't understand a lot about what that spirit nature looks like and feels like and is, but we do know that that spirit nature is not immortal, just like you said, except for God first and then Jesus. So let's go a little bit further. Finally, we see that Jesus, after his resurrection, and this will be in the next scripture, is dwelling in the light of God. And that was the only being, he was the only being with immortality until the true church is glorified with him. And this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Who alone possesses immortality, this refers to Jesus, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Jesus received immortality, the divine nature, at his resurrection as a reward for his faithful obedience to his Father's will. I like Ephesians 1.21. It says he was highly exalted, far above angels and above every name that is named in heaven and in earth. And if he had been immortal sooner, think about this, if he was born a human and had this immortal soul, he would not have been able to die and be the savior of the world. Christ died for our sins and was subsequently exalted with immortality. And so as we go through all of these, these, these different ways of, of looking at it, folks, we've put an awful lot on the table. There, there, there's, there's definitions, but there is scriptural proof. And if you notice, what we tried very hard to do today is to just give you only scripture as a way to explain things. Only scripture. Old Testament scripture has to be verified and proven in the New Testament. New Testament scripture has to be backed up by the Old Testament when you have major doctrines. You can't have God's inherently uh, uh, unbreakable word work without both testaments working together. So we tried to go from old to new, old to new, so we could see this in a big way. We as human souls simply don't have immortality inherently present within us. The scriptures are clear and evident. Jonathan, finally, the Bible and the human soul. Well, what do we have for the last time here? The Bible clearly teaches that the human soul is the result of a living physical body. It is the human life that is dependent upon basic bodily function, external sustenance, and protection. Without all these elements, the soul, the human life, would be rendered dead and therefore out of existence. And so as we look at the human soul, again, We've only tackled half of the subject. We need to get into the human spirit next week, but we've tried to clearly define 
what the human soul is. So let me go back to what we began as the popular understanding among many people. You live in a body, true or false? Well, your conscious being does live in a body, but the, the, you, your life is because of the body. So, see, I don't like the true or false answer, Julia. Okay, but we, be, are, we, have, we, have a, we have a body. We, we have a body, and you, for, to be alive, you need a body. How's that? Okay. How about you are a spirit, true or false? Well, first of all, we're going to discuss that next week, but no, you're not okay. a spirit. We have a human spirit. We'll have to figure out what that is. That's next okay. week. You have a soul, true or false? Oh, that's false. We are, man became a living creature, living being, living soul, all the same thing. We don't have it. That's what we are. Okay. So spirit, body, soul, mind, all are connected to make up you. True or false? Well, you like those true or false questions, don't I do. you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like concise answers. <laughs> well, all of those things do make up what the human form is, but let's be careful to not get into the word games of the ethereal perspective of things that are very natural. We want okay. to make sure that we're looking at this through the eyes of clarity and scripture. Scripture, and by the way, we use scripture to, to prove everything because the scriptures are the most important thing here. So, folks, look, with the human soul now being defined and understood, we're going to do the same for the human spirit uh, as we come up on next week's podcast. Uh, part two is going to go through the defining and understanding process so we can truly see what the differences are between soul and spirit, how our soul and spirit work together, and what happens to our spirit at death. We've talked about the soul, the being, what happens to it at death. Part two, please don't miss part two, is going to expand this even further so that we can have an understanding of what the Bible teaches without any prejudice, without any additions, without any philosophies, without any paganism, without any of the other things. Taking all of that out, we just want the scriptures to show us what we are and how God's plan will bless every human who have ever lived. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Uh, give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week... Where does the human soul and spirit go when we die? Part two. Don't miss it.